So the, the question is, are we going to finish Nehemiah? Because we're halfway through, and there are 13 chapters, and uh, we've got, uh, after tonight, we've got two weeks left. We, up to now, we have gone slowly. But now, we're going to accelerate. In fact, what we're going to do as we begin tonight and look at Nehemiah, I attempted a couple of weeks ago to handle two chapters. Tonight, I'm going to handle three. At least, I'm going to make an attempt. But in order to do this, we've got to get in a mental helicopter. One of the things that's amazing about a helicopter is they can hover. They can just stay in place. They don't, they don't, they don't go forward. They don't go backward. They just... It's like when you say to a dog, stay. Stay. A helicopter will stay. It'll just stay in the air. Uh, what we're going to do tonight, we are going to hover over Nehemiah. And we are going to look down on Nehemiah, and we're going to look at chapters 7, 8, and 9. The way that we're going to do this, let me give you an outline uh, just a two-part outline tonight. Number one, two divisions, comma, two tasks, comma, and two men. Two divisions, two tasks, and two men. Second point in the outline, three aerial snapshots. Uh, so we're in the helicopter, and when you look down at Nehemiah, when you look down at the whole book, there are two divisions in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, chapters 1 through 6, and then chapters 7 through 13. It just is a natural break right there. So 1 through 6 is the first division, 7 through 13 is the next division. Then you've got two tasks in Nehemiah. The first task we've been looking at over the last weeks. That first task, as you know, was rebuilding the wall which had been broken down. They rebuilt it in 52 days. So it was a huge accomplishment. The second task, which is in the second division of the book, they've rebuilt the walls. Now the task is to rebuild the men of the nation so that they can rebuild their families. And when families are rebuilt according to Scripture, you've got a godly nation. We'll see this in just a minute. God's always interested in men. God, God loves men. He does. He loves men. Men are not real popular in our culture. If you use the term masculinity, you've got to put another word in front of it, which is toxic. Toxic. That's not how God looks at it. 
Now, when a man lives apart from God and does his own thing and is selfish and just interested in serving himself, that's when people get hurt because that's a man out of control. That's a man who can do a lot of damage. But when the Lord gets a hold of the man and changes his heart and gives him eternal life and the Holy Spirit lives within him and that man has a teachable spirit and that man is born again, now you got something to work with. And it's that kind of man that the Lord uses to make a difference. So you've got two divisions, you've got two tasks. The second half of the book that we're gonna to see tonight and moving ahead is really about the emphasis on the word of God and using it to teach and equip men so that they can rebuild the family and the community. It's really how you rebuild a nation. Not tear down a nation. It's how you rebuild a nation. Then you've got two men. God called two men for the two tasks. Obviously to rebuild the wall, we've been looking at Nehemiah. He was the builder of the wall. But tonight, Ezra is going to enter back into the picture. Ezra was a priest. In fact, the book prior to Nehemiah is Ezra. Ezra was a man of God. He was a priest. He returned. He got to Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah did. Uh, he was a priest. He was a teacher of the law. He was a scribe. He is described in Ezra 7, verse 10. Actually, we'll read verse uh, 6 of 7. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the, and the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Just as God gave favor to the king for Nehemiah 13 years prior. He had done the same thing for Ezra. And then in verse 10, it, it tells us in the, in the intermittent verses about his journey. But when he gets there, he goes to work, verse 10, and it tells us about his heart. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. That's huge. It, studying the Bible is just not to have information so that if you ever get on Jeopardy, you're going to win that high, whole round. It's just not to know stuff. It's to know what God says, and then it's to do it. Because God blesses obedience. God disciplines disobedience. And he was a man who set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. That's a description of a man who makes a difference. That's the description of a man who doesn't tear down society. That's the description of a man who builds. Builds into people, builds into relationships. It's the kind of man you want to be around. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So that's Ezra, and Ezra's going to make a reappearance. Um, 
And he's, we'll see Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is the governor. Ezra is the priest. God uses men. God loves men. God loves to take a man who has been in rebellion to the Lord, and God loves to uh, take that man and get his attention and um, stun him and uh, interrupt the man's plans because we're all born running away from God. We're, we're all born with sinful hearts, and we're all born wanting to do our own thing. We all want to do it my way. But there is a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs says, and the end thereof is destruction. So God, in his mercy, will interrupt our plans and will allow us perhaps to hit a brick wall going 150 miles an hour. And suddenly all of our hopes and dreams and plans and objectives are crushed. Uh, We're broken. We don't see any possible way out but whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're we're watching persecution increase. The greatest persecutor of the New Testament church was a guy named Saul, who became the great apostle of Christianity, who established more churches, who wrote more scripture, and he was on his way to Damascus to do more persecution. It was interesting, Pastor James Coates, who spent time in jail of late and still has a charge and still could go back to jail. I saw him in an interview this week and he was talking about those who have been opposing him and the church and he said, you know, actually, they're opposing the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going toe-to-toe with the Lord Jesus, and that tends not to turn out well. <laughs> that was true of the Apostle Paul. He's on his way to Damascus, and, uh, and he runs into the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus didn't say, I want to share the plan of salvation with you, and then we're going to sing three stanzas of Just As I Am, and I'd like you to come forward. That's not what Jesus said. He said, hey, you, come with me. And the guy's blind. He didn't know what's going on. He's scared. He's freaked out. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. You're persecuting me. Now, that's exactly what's going on now, all around the world. They're going toe-to-toe with him. It will not turn out well for them. Some he has chosen, as he chose Saul to become Paul, to build the kingdom of God, who right now are against the kingdom of God. Just interesting to watch the Lord work. But God loves to take men who are rebellious and who are self-centered and to change their hearts. And then to make them a force for the kingdom and to use them, not to tear down, but to uh, build up, to be Nehemiahs. There is a passage in Titus 2 as we get going. I want to talk a little bit about Nehemiah and Ezra before we dive into this tonight. Uh, Titus 2 
And then verse 2. Paul is instructing Titus in 2.1. He says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men, older men. Everybody in here is an older man. Because there's always somebody younger than you. And all the way through life, there's always somebody older. I mean, generally speaking, there's always somebody younger. So he's addressing older men. Uh, Nehemiah and uh, Ezra were older men. I, I don't know where that line delineates in, in the Old Testament. If you were the age of 20, you were considered an adult male. But <clears throat> Nehemiah was older than that. Ezra was older than that. Older men are to be temperate. It means sober, not, not addicted. They are to be dignified. I'm going to come back to that word. Sensible. That means they've got their feet on the ground. Uh, they are to be sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. So, uh, sound in faith, sound in faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, so they're sound in scripture. You can't be sound in faith without the scriptures. There are men who are growing in the word, and because they're growing in the word, they're growing in love, they're sound in their love, they're learning to love as opposed to being self-centered, and this is a process so they're sound in faith, they're sound in love, and in um, steadfastness or perseverance. They stay with it. Uh, none of us have this thing perfected. We're still in process, but we keep following the Lord. I want to go back to the word that in the New American Standard is the word dignified. Some translations have reverence. They're reverent. Some, um, the King James says older men are to be temperate. They are to be grave. Grave. So I came across an article by Michael Foster recently that deals with this passage. Let me give you a couple shots on it because it's going to describe Nehemiah and Ezra. And it's going to describe the kind of men that we want to be for the Lord. He writes, do you want to be taken seriously as a man? Most men do, but most men equally find it difficult to be the sort of man that others take seriously. That would be a man with gravitas, gravity, uh, grave. Men need gravitas like women need beauty. The term is Latin, a Roman virtue referring to something like seriousness, if we were to translate it, however, better words might be dignity or weight. A, a man, um, the, I love the word gr gravitas, gravity. It, it, a, a man, uh, an older man is to be dignified. He is to have weight. He has to have, he has to have substance. He's not to be an airhead. He's to have uh, gravitas. He goes on and says, a good example of gravitas in Scripture is Titus 2.2. Here, Paul tells Titus to instruct the older men to be grave, using the King James. And then he quotes John Calvin. 
Calvin said, there should be a becoming gravity in the lives of aged men which compels the young to modesty. That's fascinating. The spiritual weight, he goes on, Foster now, and says the spiritual weight of these men should be such that their gravitational pull draws younger men into a closer orbit with God. Just by the weight of your life, just by the, um, well, he goes on. This is excellent. He says, because the visible, the visible reveals the invisible, gravity itself is a useful analogy. Gravity pulls things into their proper place. It brings and maintains order. If it were to cease, we would all start floating helplessly. Our solar system would be reduced to chaotic chunks of rock spinning wildly into the void. So it is with gravitas. It establishes order and regularity. Without it, our cosmos falls into disorder and chaos. This is why Calvin says that gravitas is procured by well-regulated morals. Well-regulated morals. Uh, that's the Ten Commandments. It's the moral law of God, which is still in effect. And those are the morals. By the way, when you look at what's going on in our nation and you look at what's going on in our culture, it's a direct attack on the moral law of God. It's a direct attack on the holiness of God and what God has revealed in Scripture is his plan for the people he has created, and this is the best way to live it, it, the Ten Commandments are restated in Deuteronomy 5, but in Deuteronomy 4, before he reminds them of those Ten Commandments, he, he says, this is for you and for your children that it might go well with them. Life goes better when you follow God's morality. We have a culture that is absolutely hell-bent on... defeating God's morality, and defeating anyone who holds to God's morality. This is why Calvin says that gravitas is procured by well-regulated morals, scriptural morals. To have the ability to discern between good and evil, between wisdom and foolishness, is to have the foundation of gravitas. The grave man, the gravitas man, is a man who has learned wisdom, and trained himself in rightly ordering both himself and his world. His very present exerts a force that orders those around him. Just your presence. Just your presence. When something's not right in the family, your kids should be looking to you. Because you see, you're the moral compass. You're the dad, you're the grandpa. There's a weight there is an orderliness, there is a congruency in your life before you even say anything. His very present exerts force that orders those around him. He is a bulwark against chaos. That's a Christian man. But the opposite is equally true. A society lacking in grave men is a society abundant in social disorder. You look around and what do we have? Social disorder. Men without gravity are consciously or not agents of chaos. 
So chaos is everywhere. Why? It's a lack of men who are following Christ. But the Lord always has his men. He always has a remnant. Always. Always. And sometimes we get perhaps, you know, intimidated because we feel like we're outnumbered. As I would travel for years and do men's conferences and all that, and I would talk to guys in churches, and how do we grow our men's group? That's a good question. I don't know. I think that's hard to do. Really? Yeah. But you, you, are you talking about numbers? Oh, yeah, we want to get more guys. Why do you want more guys? What do you mean, why do we want? Well, we just want, we want more. I said, yeah. You know, Gideon had too many men. You can have too many men. Don't worry about how many you've got. Worry about equipping and maturing the ones you've got. Jesus spent three years with 12. And there was a master plan behind that. But he developed men of gravitas. Nehemiah and Ezra were men of gravitas. So let's get to the second point here. And let's look at the three aerial photographs, snapshots of Nehemiah 7, 8, and 9. Uh, these are big chunks of Scripture. But there are lessons in each chapter, and we're just going to take a snapshot here. And by taking the snapshot, here's what we'll see. We'll see how you rebuild the hearts of men, which in turn they will rebuild the hearts of their families, which in turn re rebuilds the heart of a community. There was um, a time in England's history where the nation was so far away from God and there was such immorality and such drunkenness and such wickedness and such ill treatment of workers and uh, injustice on every front that you had, you had the rich and you had the poor. Uh, and it looked like England could go the way of France with the French Revolution and go into utter anarchy. But it didn't because God raised up some men, some young men who had been at Oxford together. And they had found the Lord, a guy named George Whitfield, uh, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. Uh, and God used those men, and there was a great awakening in England, and the nation turned. Uh, it's remarkable. Just a handful of men. Whitfield would preach in England, he would preach in the United States. They wouldn't let him preach in the churches because he preached the Bible. They didn't want the Bible. They had churches, but they didn't want the gospel. So he went outside, and they said, you can't do that. And he said, sure, I can. He'd get on a tree stump, and the coal miners would be coming out of the mines after a 12-hour shift, and their faces just caked black with coal, and he'd begin to preach the Word of God, and there'd be 25, 30, 40,000 men. And the people would gather, and he would preach without a microphone. It's astonishing, isn't it? And he knew the Spirit of God was moving when he could see white streaks on their faces. 
because the Spirit of God was moving and convicting. And uh, thousands, thousands, thousands were coming to Christ. It was called the Great Awakening. So we never lose hope. You never know what God's going to do. So let's look at the first aerial snapshot. It's in Nehemiah 7, verses 1 through 4. Uh, We're going to see a couple other men here that Nehemiah trusted. And now that they've rebuilt the wall, now what they have to do is, is get people to live inside the wall. They've got to populate the cities and populate Jerusalem. So in Nehemiah 7, as we look down from the helicopter, now when the wall was rebuilt, Nehemiah says, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. He had gravitas. He had gravity. He was serious. He was sound. Uh, As Titus heard from Paul, he was sound in faith uh, and in love, in relationships. He was a man to be looked up to. Uh, He was serious about the Lord. Uh, Look at verse 3. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing... Guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few. And houses were not built yet. And, but in the rest of the chapter, you're going to get a census report of the people that had come and were going to be living and populating the city and surrounding towns. Okay. I want to focus on these few verses because there's a great lesson between what's going on right now in our nation where we're seeing, we're seeing a nation being torn down. They were building up a nation and they were following God's blueprint. So what you see here is they rebuilt the wall. They closed the gates. And they established and funded a police force. It's in the text. I'm not making this up. Look again. Now, when the wall was rebuilt, it was rebuilt. Why was it rebuilt? To protect the future inhabitants. Every city, you can still go over there on tours and you can still see the walls. They all had walls. If you got a lot of money and you live in a nice neighborhood, you got a wall. It might be an invisible wall, but you might have an invisible fence. And even your dogs can't get in or out. I mean, we, we build walls for a reason. So they, when the wall was rebuilt, I'd set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers of the Levites were appointed. He puts Hanani, Hananiah in charge. Then I said, don't let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot while they are standing guard, while they are standing guard. 
let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. They were there to serve, protect, and defend. It was a police force. And they were funded. We, in contrast, today stop the wall. We open the gates. And we defund the police. And that's working so well. Is it not? No. What do we have? We've got absolute chaos. We, we've got horrific child abuse down at the border. You've seen it, it breaks your heart. People are being used. But when you have no problem with killing children in the womb, why would you not take little children and just let them go and throw them over the wall? Because, see, you really don't care. It's all a ruse. That's not in your heart. You don't care for those kids. You're using those kids. You will use anybody to get power and to keep power. And the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He sees the wickedness. And this is wicked. You defund the police. I, I remember seeing a, a video clip, I don't know, months ago, and they were interviewing some older black people in the inner city, asking them, how do you feel about defunding the police? And this one guy... He's about 60. The guy, you know, the guy had gravitas. I mean, I wish, I'd like to talk to the guy. I, I would put money on this. Since I am a gambling man, <laughs> I would put money on the fact the guy knew the Lord because he had all, he had gravitas. He just, there was something about the guy that said, this is a credible man. This is a solid citizen. And they said, so sir, what do you think about defunding the police? And he laughed. He said, defunding the police nobody around here wants to defund them. We want more of them. Yeah, this is a dangerous place to live. It's dangerous here. We want more. And then the next person said the same thing. And the next person. And the next person. But see, in our times, this is what's going on. And these are spiritual issues. Know that. And they are issues that there are issues that God has given to nations and the cities. Just this past week, I, I have a calendar where I read through the Bible every year. I was reading through Leviticus, and I was thinking to myself, and there are all these laws in Leviticus, and you know, you think they're kind of, man, that's just really intricate, and it's even that when they were out in the desert, when they wandered for 40 years, they had a they had a small spade they carried with them because when they needed to relieve themselves, they would go off somewhere and then they would dig a little hole and then they would cover it and because God was very concerned about health and about cleanliness. I'm reading this and I thought, you know what? They need to read this in San Francisco. I used to drive a truck in San Francisco. I did it for several years in the summer between college and seminary. And uh, there's some beautiful city. You've probably been there. 
Last time I was in San Francisco, real nice area, you gotta walk. You gotta be real careful where you walk because there's human feces everywhere. And there's disease. I mean, it is horrific. But they've abandoned God. And when you abandon God, your life gets bad real quick on every front. That's the first snapshot. The rest of seven is the census stuff. Now let's go to eight. Here's the second uh, aerial snapshot, photograph. Ezra is going to teach the law. The second principle is teach God's word to all, especially the men. 8-1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. They got past the triple fence that the authorities had put in place. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't say that. That's in Canada. I forgot about that. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So men, women, children, if they can handle being there. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Uh, Ezra's on a podium with 13 other priests. That's verse 4. For Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. That is a sign of respect for the word of God. God used Martin Luther 500 years ago, Roman Catholic priest. He was trying to earn his way to God. He'd been told that. It's the only way to get to God is by works, but he kept studying the scriptures, and then the Lord, he would see it, that the just shall live by faith. And he realized that we're justified not by works, but we're justified by faith in Christ. And, you know, up until now, what happened is that the only Bibles were in cathedrals, and they were chained to the altar. And even if you could get to it, you couldn't read it because it was in Latin. And only the priest could read Latin, so only the priest could tell you what it said and what it meant. But then, just by chance, when Luther saw the gospel and in the providence of God, was kidnapped by his friends to save his life and taken to a castle because the authorities were going to kill him, he spent his time translating the scripture, the New Testament, into uh, everyday German. And just by chance, this guy Gutenberg had put together this printing press, and now all of a sudden the Bible is going out everywhere, and people are reading it. And revival broke out. And when they would come to worship, they would have a platform which the elders would carry with, with a large Bible, and the service would open. Everyone would stand. The elders would come in from the back holding this platform with a large Bible over their heads, which signified 
that this is the authority over all mankind. And you stand for the word of God. It's the authority of authorities. It's God's word. So they stood. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then it mentions the priest who explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now, nine. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord. Um, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Why were they weeping? For the same reason the coal miners had tears coming on their faces. Because they were convicted by what they heard from the word of God. They were convicted about their sin. But then they say, you guys don't need to weep. And we'll see this in just a minute. Because he goes on and says, instead of weeping, and there's a time to weep, but there's also a time to rejoice. You weep because of your sin. But the Lord is a compassionate God. He is a forgiving God. And he is a merciful God. They say in 10, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What does that mean? Well, I, I heard the law, and I'm a sinner, and I offended God deeply. Uh, yes, but he is, the Lord is good, he's compassionate, he's merciful, he is a forgiving God, he is your Savior. And because of who he is, your sins have been forgiven. One day the Messiah will come and die in your place for your sins. We celebrate this now. So don't forget that. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What joy? The joy that you've been forgiven in the future coming Messiah. That joy is your strength. Yes, we're sinners, but we have a Savior. You see that? Go down to 13. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Now he's honing in on the men. Because men are central and men are key. God's called men to lead the family and God's called men to lead the church. Same thing as Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, he addresses the fathers and he addresses the grandfathers. Um, same thing. There are two things that fathers and grandfathers must do if you turn over quickly to Deuteronomy 6. But, but God, God focuses on men. And, and you know who else focuses on men? Satan. If you want to destroy a nation, what do you do? You destroy the families. How do you destroy a family? You destroy the men. You, you take men out of the homes. You get men self-centered. You get men who make a commitment and then they don't keep it. They walk away from their wives. They walk away from their kids. They become irresponsible. Um, they're just living for themselves. 
They, they destroy their families, trying to keep their youthfulness, find some young chick somewhere. I mean, it's absolutely insane. It's foolish. Deuteronomy 6, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess. You're getting ready to go in the promised land. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord, your God, to keep all the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you. You want to have a good life? Do it God's way. Do what he says. He invented life. He has wisdom. Just do what he says. Uh, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then he gives them two things, fathers and grandfathers. Number one, fathers and grandfathers are to love God deeply. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So you love God deeply. How do I love God deeply? How do I come to love God deeply? By being in his word. And then the second thing that grandfathers and fathers are to do is to teach your children diligently. And there are two ways to teach. You teach with your words and you teach with uh, your life. And when you have gravitas, you're teaching with your life. You're teaching even when you don't say anything. And you're pulling them into your orbit. You shall teach them diligently your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. As you go through life, you're just talking, you're going through life and when something comes up, you know, and there's a teach them a moment, you, you just tell them about the Lord. You teach them a principle, you, you know. But you've got to be with. You've got to be with. The key is with. Jesus modeled this for us. He was always with the disciples. If he went across the Sea of Galilee, they were with him. He went up to Capernaum, they were with him. He went to Jerusalem, they were with him. And they were always asking him stupid questions. <laughs> That's a father with kids. Right? <laughs> it's the greatest thing in the world. And it, you get tired and you get worn out and Sure you do. But you're building lives. And those little boys one day, they're not going to be four or five or six or seven. They're going to be 44, 45, 46, 47. 74, 75, 76, 77. When you're with the Lord, they're going to be continuing the line. They're going to be continuing to rebuild the community and the family that's the greatest calling in the world. Father, we bow before you and we thank you for the way you work in our lives. We're living in confusing times. Give us wisdom to take your word seriously and to apply it as Ezra did to his heart so that we can be men of gravitas. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.